From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Vaccines can help keep COVID-19 at bay, but what happens if you do get sick? Today, what doctors are learning about treatment, that includes using monoclonal antibodies. There were no like side effects or anything, and yeah, it made me feel better. We'll talk with a patient who got the treatment and an emergency physician about how it works, plus the possibility of a new antiviral pill. Then, an all-out effort to connect with people struggling with the increasing stress of life, from suicide awareness to gun violence. We want to make men especially, and young men, know that it's okay to not be okay, that it's okay to seek help. We want them to know that it's all right to say that they're hurting before they take a step toward the wrong direction where there is no coming back from. As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at CPR would like to thank the members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado. Thank you for your support. Happy Holidays. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel on the Western Slope. A lot remains elusive about COVID-19, including what to expect from the new Omicron variant. But a few things scientists do know. The vaccine offers the best protection yet against the virus and severe illness. And more recently, that monoclonal antibodies help prevent people with COVID from getting very sick. Reagan Sasaki was fully vaccinated when she caught COVID-19 in October. She teaches sixth grade science at Discovery Canyon in Colorado Springs. I didn't think I had COVID. I thought I had like a sinus infection. I had like a lot of pressure like in my sinuses and then I was just congested. But then like I lost my taste and smell. And she doesn't know where she picked up the virus. So I wore a mask while teaching. Um, I just tried to do my best to social distance and make sure like I was washing my hands frequently. I don't know. I'm assuming I got it at school. Sasaki says at the time her students weren't eligible to get the vaccine and she has an underlying condition, thyroid cancer. She hadn't heard about monoclonal antibodies until she told her oncologist she tested positive for COVID-19. She was able to undergo treatment within days of her diagnosis. They give you an IV and then... The infusion takes about like 30 minutes, but then you have to stay for observation for like an hour just to make sure you don't have an allergic reaction. And then then it's done. Sasaki is recovered from COVID now, but hasn't been able to get her booster shot yet because she has to wait six months after having the virus. But overall, she's feeling good. There were no like side effects or anything. And yeah, it made me feel better. It really helped with, like, my symptoms that I was experiencing. That's Reagan Sasaki, who underwent monoclonal antibody treatment after getting COVID-19. Let's get a better understanding now about how that works. Dr. Adit Ginde is an emergency department physician at UC Health and a professor of emergency medicine at the CU School of Medicine. He spoke with Ryan Warner. And, Doctor, thank you so much, uh, indeed, for being with us. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. In layman's terms, how do monoclonal antibodies work? Are, are they from sick people? Are they extracted from sick people? 
Monoclonal antibodies are proteins that are made in the laboratory that are based on real antibodies from recovered COVID-19 patients. They're carefully selected based on the strength in neutralizing the virus. And then they're manufactured into medicine that can be given as an intravenous infusion or injection under the skin and rapidly neutralize the virus within a, uh, a patient early in the course of COVID-19. Forgive me for being dense, but is it actually something extracted from a sick patient or something merely modeled after that? So originally when the medicines were made, they were based on a real antibody extracted from a recovered patient. Mm-hmm. Now the, the sequence is known, so you don't have to keep extracting new antibodies the sort of the best, the strongest antibodies are known, and those are the ones that are manufactured in the medicine completely in the lab. So in a way, we have previously sick patients to thank for this science. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of what we've done over the last year and a half in the science is based on the contributions of, of patients and the community in participating in this research. There is a window for these to be effective, these antibodies. What is that window? That's right. Really, as early as possible, you have up to 10 days uh, to receive the treatment. But really, we want to be administering these monoclonal antibody treatments in the first three to five days of illness to have the maximum benefit. People start getting hospitalized after five or six days into illness. And the the point of this is largely to prevent hospitalization. So that, that timing can run pretty quickly in terms of getting sick, getting tested, and then getting access to treatment. So you say three to five days from illness, not necessarily from exposure, is the the trigger for me getting monoclonal antibodies that I just don't feel well and then I get tested or what? That's right. So what we recommend is really on the first day of symptoms, you know, a cough, a fever, even, you know, a runny nose, getting tested. That has important public health benefits you know, to prevent the spread of the, the virus to, you know, uh, have isolation. But now we have a treatment, a highly effective treatment to prevent people from getting worse mm-hmm. and actually get them feeling better. So getting tested on that, you know, first day or as soon as possible can take, you know, sometimes a day or two to get that test result. The test result comes back positive and you qualify for treatment, then getting in to get treated as soon as possible. Is treatments with monoclonal antibodies as widespread, as available as you'd like in Colorado? This is a challenge in Colorado and nationally. One, there's an awareness issue, both with the general public, as well as providers and healthcare systems. I think, you know, the state, the governor, um, our health system, UC Health, and others have been doing a great job of getting the word out. The drug supply is there. There's enough drug. It's challenging to stand up the capacity uh, to give as much access to treatment. You know, we're seeing still, you know, 2,000 or higher cases per day. Three out of every four patients that test positive for the virus will qualify for treatment. You need a risk factor for progression to hospitalization, but that can be being overweight, older age, having a, a medical condition. Most medical conditions can put you at risk, um, as well as high-risk uh, professions or racial and ethnic minorities and other groups that are high risk from the virus. So, so most people are eligible uh, for treatment. We're still not able to get this treatment to many of the people that qualify for this. So, you know, the outreach, the the awareness is is really important. 
And do say a few more words about who qualifies. Are there age restrictions or what? Right. So, uh, you know, age greater than 65 is the, the age cutoff. But, you know, having any medical condition, high blood pressure, diabetes, heart or lung disease, kidney disease qualifies you. And just being overweight puts you at risk to have severe disease and hospitalization. And so that is, you know, a, a number of people um, in the state and in the country qualify in that criteria as well. Um, there's others, but, but most people qualify uh, for treatment that will test positive. Okay. When you said the age range, will you put a finer point on that for me? Greater than 65, did you say? Right. So if you're older than age 65, even if you don't have medical conditions or other risk factors, you qualify. If you're younger than age 65, so if your age is 12 to 64, you need to have another risk factor to Got qualify that. for treatment, but that could be any medical condition or any of the other factors that we've discussed. And would very young kiddos qualify? Only 12 and older. Only 12 and older. Um, is where the, the research is. Okay. Yep. Do you think that in the face of Omicron, and we still don't quite know uh, what its effect will be, that this is going to be an important tool in the arsenal? Absolutely. I mean, it's still early in the Omicron variant. We're only about a week into identifying this. Um, we need every tool that we have at our disposal to start preparing uh, for what may come. And there's really two interventions that prevent COVID-19 patients from being hospitalized, getting on a ventilator, or even dying. One is vaccination. And if you're already vaccinating, get a boost, getting a, a booster. And the second is monoclonal antibodies given early in the course of disease. There's still a lot to learn, but those are, both, those are the two, two best tools we have to, to prevent COVID-19 in general and as we think forward to the uh, Omicron variant. And very briefly, how effective are these antibodies? So these antibodies actually prevent up to 70% of hospitalizations. Um, and we're finding in our data a high effect on preventing needing a, a ventilator or dying from the virus. So really highly effective, especially when given early in treatment to those that are vaccinated, to those that are unvaccinated, um, especially the highest risk people. So we're doing special outreach to those with multiple medical conditions or those that are older or have uh, conditions that suppress their immune system. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Ryan Warner, speaking with Dr. Adit Ginde, an emergency department physician at UC Health and a professor of emergency medicine at the CU School of Medicine. Public health officials in Mesa County say hospitals in the region have been at or near capacity struggling to handle a major COVID surge in the region, but vaccination rates in the county lag behind the state average. CPR's Benta Berkland was recently on the Western Slope to talk politics and heard a lot from conservatives about why they don't trust the hospital numbers or the government's response to the pandemic. As the head of the Mesa County GOP, Kevin McCarney is one of the main political players in this deep red region. McCarney is 60, and he doesn't downplay the virus. He says his friend just got out of the hospital. He was on ventilator and had to have a tracheotomy and everything just, just coming off it and was recovering. I had another friend that had a serious bout of it. So I know it's real. But McCarney also wants people to return to a sense of normalcy. He says he doesn't like the official response to the pandemic. He thinks the focus on vaccines is largely driven by the pharmaceutical industry to make money. 
and that officials overlook other approaches. I've never had a flu vaccine because I try to take care of myself. I try to take my supplements, my vitamin C and stuff like that and over keep my immune system up because that's the secret to su- success. Health officials urge vaccination not only to protect the immunized, but also to prevent the continuing spread of the coronavirus. About 80 percent of Coloradans over age 12 have received at least one vaccine dose, although in Mesa County, the rate is much lower. Only around half of the eligible population is vaccinated. State health figures show the vast majority of people being hospitalized for COVID are unvaccinated. But McCarney is suspicious of the news that Mesa County's hospitals are filling up. Sometimes we get exaggerated numbers. Hospital capacity, there's more people in the hospital, maybe because of flu, which you know nobody wants to report the numbers of that, because we're all focused on one thing. This distrust of hospital numbers also came up in interviews with other Republicans in Mesa County, including political activist Nova Tucker. They're saying that our hospitals are at capacity. They are not at capacity. They're understaffed. They were understaffed before COVID. Tucker is a staunch opponent of vaccine mandates and feels the entire pandemic situation from the start has been government overreach. And, you know, I'm sorry, the government's not, they are not responsible for my health. They're responsible to guard my freedom. Mesa County Commissioner Cody Davis has been one of the few local Republicans to strongly encourage vaccination, even getting his vaccine live on local television. He says he is concerned that the county's hospitals are full, in part because it makes people fearful and may keep visitors away. And he hopes more people do get the vaccine. People should absolutely consider doing it. I think it slows the spread for sure, and it creates the public health that we need. That being said, I think it should always be a person's right to choose whether or not they get that vaccine. I think mandates have kind of the unintended consequence of people resisting and losing trust in government and things like that. A recent survey on unvaccinated people in western Colorado found for many their views are based on distrust of government. The San Juan Basin Public Health Department commissioned the survey. It showed that only one third of those who responded were open to the idea of getting vaccinated in the future. But they still need more information to be persuaded, especially about their personal risk. So here in Mesa County, we do struggle with a low vaccination rate and high case counts. Amanda Maley is with Mesa County Public Health. She says the county recently launched an Instagram campaign to try to reach unvaccinated people in their 20s. And they continue to run health clinics and send out alerts. Letting people know that hospitalizations were increasing. And as we go into this holiday period, where folks have the tendency to gather in larger groups to really have that layered approach. But for Mesa County Public Health, hoping to reach people and find a message that will overcome all the doubt and distrust isn't easy. And the survey results say public health officials may never persuade many of the unvaccinated, no matter what approach they try. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. The ongoing pandemic has caused an upheaval in many different ways. One of them is being called the Great Resignation, as people reconsider their jobs and look to find a new work-life balance. We want to hear your story. How has COVID-19 changed your thinking? Or has it? Email us at coloradomatters at cpr.org. Again, that's coloradomatters at cpr.org. I'm Nathan Heffel. You're with CPR News and KRCC. 
Tis the season for the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, hosted by me, Ryan Warner, live December 8th, masked and vaxxed at the Newman Center in Denver, with performances by comedian Elliot Woolsey, jazz man Freddie Rodriguez Jr., and Naoma. I was about to tell you last night, maybe we should head out. Remember when you were young, Tickets at cpr.org holiday. Supported by First Western Trust. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel on the Western Slope. And no matter how far I think I've come, I'm constantly reminded of where I've been. Traumatic experience after traumatic experience. Stereotype after stereotype. Feeling like every breath I take is about to be my last one. But I keep going, I keep going in spite of all the triggers, in spite of all the stress, in spite of all the drama. I keep going because that's what champions do. We don't quit, no matter how much we may want to, no matter how bad it hurts, or even unbearable the pain might be, we keep going. And this is that moment when the only thing that stands between life and death is your next decision triggers. Hmm. That audio from the new mini movie Triggers. It premieres tomorrow night as part of a community outreach program in Denver and Aurora focused on youth gun violence, suicide awareness, and mental health. The voice you just heard is Halim Ali. He's executive director and president of the nonprofit From the Heart Foundation. Halim, welcome to the show. Hello, Nathan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. I, we're going to talk about triggers in just a moment, but first I want to start with your organization. Its mantra is to uplift fallen humanity, one man, one woman, one child at a time. And that's done through mental health services, programs, and events. Can you tell me, a, uh, tell me more about that goal? Yes, sir. When we embarked upon this journey in 2016, we were actually only offering feeding programs in the community, tending to uh, our houseless population. And I was looking for my niche. I was looking for our voice right within this industry. And upon joining the prevention team at Denver Human services in 2017, I began to take, uh, they, they, they put me through a series of different classes and different workshops and different trainings. And as I uh, learned more about mental health and stigma, what I realized, Nathan, was that it was affecting the whole family unit, right? Mm -hmm. And it led me back to the, it takes a village mentality. So if we have, you know, when we talk about it takes a village to raise a child, what happens to our children when our villages are unhealthy, right? So our mission has actually grown tremendously since then and our services, yet we still uh, maintain that legacy program with the Family Service Day in serving the homeless. So that is really where we are um, 
where we are at this point. Helping everyone in the community, it sounds like. Doing our best. Doing our best to help everyone. (laughs) Yes, sir. The Youth Gun Violence Awareness and Suicide Prevention Wellness Weekend is a two-day event. It kicks off Friday night with workshops planned for Saturday in Denver, and it's organized by the King's Council Black Male Health Initiative. That's made up of the From the Heart Foundation, the Crowley Foundation, and Apprentice of Peace Youth Organization. You actually started planning this event in 2019 before the pandemic and well before the recent shootings we've seen in Aurora. What does all this say about the larger community need that you planned this well before now? It says that things are only getting worse and the pandemic has catapulted the need for mental health services. I think a lot of us were forced to, to you know, we couldn't escape through uh, social environments. We couldn't escape through work a lot of times. So we were faced with unresolved trauma and unaddressed life situations that linger, that if they're not addressed, ultimately, there's a saying, Nathan, pressure bus pipe. So when we started Mm -hmm. this campaign in 2019, I actually uh, began that journey because I had, you know, I have a daughter and she had a third failed suicide attempt in at the end of 2018. And that personal experience actually led me to initially address what my daughter was going through, but then it led to this Me Too movement. The more parents I talked to, they were saying that they were having similar scenarios in their household. So it grew to a community conversation. I felt like, okay, if we come out as parents, if we come out as community leaders and influencers and we actually are vulnerable and transparent and we let it be known that I'm not just a mental health advocate and a mental health uh, professional, but I am also experiencing trouble in that area with my own family. And this and this runs deep. I know it does, at least for your family. You have a very personal story about gun violence. You were shot and almost killed in 1993 during that time that was dubbed the Summer of Violence, right? Yes, sir. I was actually in a gang at that time, and I was shot, almost killed, and I believe there were some 11,000 shootings that year, and I was one of those shootings. Hmm. Yes, sir. And so how does how does that tie into the relationship that you have with your daughter, the pain that you felt um, being in the situation you were in, the pain? she was feeling uh, where she was personally? How do you tie that all together? And then it's a big question. How do you tie that to to an entire community? You know, Nathan, I was very naive at that time. And I felt like only extremely troubled youth were finding themselves in that situation. So I was confused because my daughter was very sheltered, educated from a very nourishing and nurturing environment. So I realized at that point that I had to remove 
the judgment and really look at our, um, you know, the, the, the overall predicament that our youth find themselves in with the pressure, the peer, the peer pressure, the, uh, even parental pressure to succeed and excel. Um, we have a tendency to sometimes compare ourselves to our youth and we make them feel, we set a standard that may be um, imperceivable for them at their tender ages. And then also <laughs> separation, divorce. Her, uh, her mother and I went through a divorce and that was extremely challenging. And when I look at that, Nathan, from a micro perspective, and then when we go outward to that macro, this is a situation that is happening far too often in our society. And a lot of times the children become the ones that end up suffering because they don't understand what mom and dad are going through. Yet they're still expected to perform. They're still expected to normalize growing up to normalize uh, pain without it being addressed specifically, right? So mm -hmm. there should have been some group or family therapy or counseling, right? But we as parents, you know, we have our own set of problems. So we're not always able to see the big picture, right? So, right. yes, sir. Well, it, 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 it seems that this ties into that short film that we heard a bit of in the beginning, uh, Triggers. It, it's this mini movie you're releasing, and it's part of this community discussion about the films about three young men with very different backgrounds and upbringings, yet their lives also have this commonality of trauma and pain that you're discussing. Will you briefly expound uh, on that film a little bit? Yes, sir. So... We began Triggers, the production of Triggers with SBG marketing and production around seven, eight months ago, Nathan. Mm -hmm. And it started off as a concept to initially address youth gun violence. I had lost a mentee in 2020, July of 2020 to gun violence. And in that same year, one of the uh, organizations with the King's Council also lost a youth. So we wanted to come up with a new way, a new strategy to address what our youth are going through in that realm. So we were really looking at the scope of gun violence and the um, the trend at that time, pre-pandemic leading into the pandemic was youth on youth gun violence. However, mm -hmm. after the pandemic, the trend shifted because the social environments were limited. So then it became self-harm. It became suicide. So we added that component to the short film and Another component that really showed up on its own, Nathan, was and was, was addressing our black men, our youth black men and young black men from the LGB community. Because what we find is there is a higher 
suicide rate among that population of men than it is for straight black men. So this was a very challenging, courageous conversation. And it took almost four months to find the young man that would play that role. Because of that stigmatism, it seems like that's that's so interesting. We we are going to have to leave it there. There is so much more we could talk about, but I, yes, I sir. do have to leave it there. <laughs> Halim Ali, thank you so much for joining us. He's the executive director and president of the nonprofit From the Heart Foundation. We're going to post details about the Youth Gun Violence Awareness and Suicide Prevention Wellness Weekend at CPR.org in the Colorado Matters podcast, so be sure to check that out. And coming up tomorrow, CPR crime and justice reporter Allison Sherry joins us. She's been talking with the community about the recent violence in Aurora. And we're going to take a closer look at what's been dubbed that summer of violence in Colorado and the ongoing impact this all has on policy and people. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Lots of great songs debuted this year. Many of them on Indie 1023. Hey you in the front row. So which were your favorites? Take part in a listener poll at CPR.org. Click on Indie 1023 to submit your choices for the best songs of 2021. Then hear the top 102.3 picks to ring in the new year on Indie 1023 and on the new Colorado Public Radio app. Vote now. The poll closes on December 17th. People in Colorado who work low-wage jobs have struggled during the pandemic to pay for the already high cost of housing. But making ends meet is even harder for undocumented families living in Metro Denver. As part of CPR's series on housing instability, Denverites Esteban Hernandez met with Latinas who face added barriers as they navigate increasing rents and an ongoing pandemic. Brenda doesn't remember the particulars of getting an eviction notice. She says it arrived in February or March. What she does remember clearly is how she felt reading the notice that requested a court appearance. She says she's never been in trouble before. She was just scared. On a recent morning, Brenda sat with Jessica, talking about a pandemic that has been pretty tough on low-wage workers. Brenda worked as a housekeeper, and Jessica was a nanny before losing her job. Both women live in a North Denver suburb, and both women are undocumented. They agreed to talk to CPR News on the condition that only their first names be used. Bye. Jessica also remembers how she felt when she was told she had to vacate her apartment. She said she was pregnant and unemployed. Now she was worried about losing her home just as she was expecting her third child. She says she cried over the phone. Jessica and Brenda have found themselves in a predicament that's becoming more common for many Coloradans. The struggle to pay for housing while trying to gain financial footing in the pandemic. Evictions, once paused by federal and state restrictions due to the health crisis, are ticking back up, leaving people one step away from homelessness. In the kitchen of Jessica's two-bedroom apartment, Brenda's two-year-old is making attempts at his first words. Jessica was able to stay in her place, but Brenda had to move out. I sat with the women while they talked about their financial hardships. Jessica hasn't paid rent. She says it's starting to add up. Brenda can't keep up with rent either. She's months behind. There is an added weight in their situation, their legal status. 
Because they are undocumented, they are ineligible to receive any of the federal benefits sent out to help keep people afloat for the last year and a half. Brenda describes a situation using a term in Spanish, desesperada, that isn't easily translatable. It means worried, anxious, and stressed all wrapped together. Alex Luna is the organizing director for United for a New Economy. The organization works to empower low-income communities to change policies that impact them. Luna says that he's helping with families with the rental relief that is available, and it's complicated. But it's putting all the responsibility on folks who, who yeah. most case in point that we're working with, are monolingual Spanish speakers mm-hmm. who aren't technologically savvy. Yeah. Luna's organization says families across Adams County, mainly in Aurora, Commerce City, and Westminster, reach out for help. And often, one or both parents may be undocumented, but the children are U.S. citizens. The reason why these problems are existing, the reason why rent is uh, able to increase is because of, you know, the prohibition ban on rent control. That gives power to the landlord to determine how much they're going to raise, uh, raise the rent. There may be about 100,000 undocumented workers in Colorado, according to the progressive-leaning Colorado Fiscal Institute. And they all need a place to live. Although there are some resources, like state-funded rental relief, there's a language barrier and a technology gap that can keep immigrants from accessing them. We never knew, like, we could get the help since, like, we're not from here. That's Iris. She's undocumented. She lives in the same complex as Jessica and spoke to CPR News on the condition that only her first name be used. She was working at a daycare in Thornton, but she stopped after getting COVID-19 there last year. She was pregnant at the time. Her symptoms were mild, but the financial pressures she faced were not. Working limited hours at her new job at a warehouse has her two months late on rent. Other bills are piling up. Now she's filling out applications for rent assistance with the help of a United for a New Economy. She says she feels embarrassed about asking for this kind of help. I'm like, what if they kick us out? <laughs> so that's the only thing we're worried about, like, us paying the rent. She is far from alone. A survey released last month by the Colorado Health Foundation paints a dire picture. It found financial insecurity is hitting Hispanic families more than any other racial or ethnic group. They were most likely to be worried about having food and paying for rent or a mortgage. Nearly a third of respondents worried about losing their home in the next year. Right now, Jessica hopes she won't be one of those people. Si me dan nervios, no sé qué voy a hacer si, si me llegan a pedir el apartamento. She says she doesn't know what she'll do if she gets evicted. She worries about her young children. And her apartment complex just raised the rent, the second time that's happened since the pandemic began. I'm Esteban Hernandez, Denverite. And you can read and listen to all of the stories in our special series on housing instability at CPR.org. We want to take a moment now to remember Jim Gallagher. He died November 20th at the age of 78. Gallagher made Colorado music history as a member of the 1960s surf music band, The Astronauts, based in Boulder, where Gallagher grew up. The Astronauts recorded for RCA, one of the biggest labels at the time, as an alternative to the Beach Boys. And in 1963, they scored a hit single with Baja. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with Gallagher in 2012, just before the astronauts were inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. They were joined by G. Brown, curator of the Hall of Fame. G. Jim, thank you both for being with us. 
Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Uh, Jim Gallagher, as I understand it, you guys were playing frat parties in Boulder, and just about the next minute you were assigned to RCA Records. How does that, how does that happen? Pretty close. Actually, we were uh, playing frat parties and playing at Tulagi, and it was... Tell, uh, tell me about Tulagi. Tulagi was a 3-2 beer club on the hill in Boulder that was billed as the la- nation's largest college haunt. Uh, we started playing there, and I'm trying to think, it was probably 1962, for $125 a night, which was big money for us. Yeah. Well, at one point, we had played at the Denver Country Club for a fellow named Ward Terry's daughter's Deb Ball. She, De- like debutante. By debutante <laughs> ball. And uh, Ward Terry was the RCA distributor in Denver. And we played there, and as you know, uh, we had a clean-cut appearance, and uh, we were well accepted with this crowd. And he was taken with the band and uh, approached us and said that he would like to contact someone at RCA Victor about going to their label. Then he followed up with it. He had set up for us to have an appointment with Steve Scholes, uh, who was the head of A&R for R.C. Victor in Hollywood. Let me say that Steve Scholes, who you're talking about mm-hmm. in L.A., uh, actually produced Elvis for R.C.A., right? That's and- correct. And Bob Damon and I uh, and the rest of the guys in the band were all in school, and we decided that we would give it a shot, and if we didn't make it, we would probably disband because we were playing so much it was starting to hurt our studies. Let me just say that Bob Demon was on guitar. He, he was band. on guitar, and he was the, the leader of the band. So he and I went down to the regiment shops and bought new suits, got on a plane, and flew to Hollywood. Uh, We had our meeting with Steve Scholes in his office at the old uh, NBC studios at Sunset and Ivar. Well, the phone rings, and he's on the phone, and he's talking to somebody, and and he goes, I know, he said, they're killing us in San Diego, and they're killing us in Santa Monica. He said... I don't know. He said, the Beach Boys are just, he said, they've really got it. Something like that. And he said, just a minute. And he covers the phone and he looks over at Bob Knight. And he said, do you guys play surf music? And we said, oh, sure. Well, we didn't. But <laughs> what are you going to do, right? Uh-huh. Golden opportunity. So he, he covered the, he went back to the phone call. And he said, well, I'm, I'm meeting with somebody now. And he said, I'll get back to you on this. So he got off the phone, and and he said, well, we'd be interested in any surf songs that you have, and we'll send somebody out in the next two or three weeks to hear you in Boulder. And we said, fine. So we came back from Hollywood and immediately went to our basement at my folks' house, and we practiced surf stuff for solidly for a couple of weeks. And uh, what had your sound been? Until well, it'd then? been cover stuff. Uh, uh, Johnny Be Good, uh, What'd I Say, Bebopalula, you know, all the songs that were popular at that time. We had very little original stuff. So you rush back to Boulder and become a surf band. Right. And I'm wondering if we might hear another song. We heard Baja in the intro. This one's called Kook, K U K. And it's from Surfing with the Astronauts, which was your first album. Correct. Was this devised in the. In the basement in Boulder? I'm sure that we we probably composed that song in the basement in Boulder because we were desperate for, for you know, any kind of tracks to lay down for this album. Well, I went to the beach just the other day. I saw a pretty girl and I wanted to say, come on, baby, go surfing with me. But I didn't know a thing about the sea. I thought I'd take 
chance, so I walked her away. I didn't know exactly what I'd say. When all at once it was a sight to see, she started whipping seven turns on me. Bonsai pipeline shooting the The song Kook from The Astronauts, uh, a Boulder band that will soon be inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. And joining us, uh, also G. Brown, who heads the Hall of Fame. G, set the scene for us. So it's, it's 1963. And what's going on in pop music? Well, this is the pre-British invasion. The Beach Boys dominating pop music on the American scene. The Four Seasons, maybe the most famous American band. But you know, um, since 1960, when Elvis had gone in the army, you were getting your Fabians and uh, (laughs) these, you know, dopey teen idol types dominating the charts. And it was really kind of a fallow time for for a great rock band. Uh, The Astronauts, when they came on the scene, were one of the few bands that really played. They had two world-class instrumentalists in Rich Byfield on guitar and Mr. Gallagher here on the drums. Jim, it's so interesting that RCA didn't make up a story that you guys were surfers from Southern California. In fact, the liner notes to your first record say this. Fact is, they call themselves the astronauts because they are the highest surfing group in the United States. And we mean like their home base is Boulder, Colorado, way up in the Rockies, just around the corner from the Air Force Academy, and the real live astronauts. It's quite an interesting, you know, like PR angle from the record company. It is. And we were kind of taken by surprise when, when those, you know, when all of this came about. Uh, Despite the success of Baja, uh, we heard in the introduction, uh, it made it to number 94 on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, Despite that, the astronauts never quite hit it big. Never did. Why? In the United States. In the United States. I just, you know, I listen to it now and I I still can't quite understand it. I feel maybe that uh, our vocal work uh, might not have been strong enough. Uh, it certainly wasn't due to lack of promotion. Hmm. Uh, the musicianship was there. I think the energy of the astronauts on stage and in concert did not show on the records. Now, you said that you weren't big in the United States. Where were you big? Well, unbeknownst to us, we were we were a big hit in Japan and we didn't know that. Uh, We'd been out on the road when we were, by the way, we were on the road all the time. We'd come back from the road and we, we'd gone out to Bob's house and uh, he said, we all got mail today from the company and we opened these envelopes and there was a check in there for each of us for $3,000. And (laughs) we couldn't believe it. Well, Bob was older and more mature, and he said, nobody leaves the room until we call our manager and find out if this money is due to us. Because, boy, I'll tell you, I was sitting there, I thought, a new car, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, we were young guys. So we called the manager, and we sat there. He had to uh, investigate what was going on, sat there for the world's longest hour. Guy called back, and he said, it's all yours. You guys have had a multi million-selling hit in Japan. And, of course, we knew nothing about it. Huh. So the the whole thing changed at that point. Actually, Did you it, buy a car? 
Of course. You did. Okay. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to know. <laughs> what did you buy? Uh, well, a 62 Chevy Impala. What else? <laughs> Four on the floor. And you toured Japan, didn't you? We toured Japan twice. The first time we went for two weeks, and the second time we went for three months. And we played an average of two shows a day, and they were sold out. And you felt like rock stars. And we felt like rock stars. Uh-huh. And we were rock stars, and we didn't know it. When did things come to an end for the astronauts? Well, the end for me personally was on November 6th of 1966. A date you have memorized. I have memorized because that was the day that I was inducted into the United States Army. A different induction altogether. V- Vietnam. Uh, I did go to Vietnam. Uh, also, Dennis Lindsay was uh, inducted into the Army. And uh, De- Dennis Lindsay is on guitar for the He was the a guitar player, and Dennis has uh, since passed away. The thing about being inducted into the Army, and this is the, the novelty of the whole thing, in the month of October of 1966, I netted $3,500 from the astronauts because we were on touring a lot and making good money. In the month of November, I made $92.30 as a private in the Army. So my life really changed after the 6th of November. That's why I remember the date so well. It was a graceful way to get out of the rock and roll business. I feel that uh, had I stayed in it, uh, who knows what would have happened. Do you still get royalty checks? <laughs> Amazingly, yes. Like uh, uh, use in commercials or what? Well, uh, lately we've been getting uh, royalty checks from uh, Sirius and XM Radio. They're playing it out there in space someplace. Can I ask what the what the checks are worth? <laughs> it's funny. Uh, several years ago, they re-released everything on CDs, and I was getting checks for four or five hundred dollars. The last check I got was about three weeks ago, and it was for writing. You know, we wrote most of these songs, and it was for eleven dollars and forty-four cents. <laughs> but it's still, you know, it's so odd when it comes in. Well, uh, G. Brown, to wrap up, why did you want the astronauts in the Colorado Music Hall of Fame? (laughs) (laughs) It was was a no-brainer for anyone familiar with Colorado music. They were the first band of the rock era to have a national impact. Uh, They had, uh, we've discussed the success in Japan, but it shouldn't diminish what they accomplished here in the States. There was... Uh, there's the type of success with charting records, but the astronauts had a, a real working success. Uh, those tours of gymnasiums and colleges and stuff. I mean, that had a value. The people that saw them on the circuit in Lawrence, Kansas and up in Nebraska will never forget them. What are you uh, looking forward to in the induction ceremony, Jim? My compensation for my involvement in this great event is I want a picture on the stage with my grandson, Edwin Taylor, on my lap. That's it. (laughs) You're going to bring him up with you. You betcha. Thank you guys so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Jim Gallagher played drums for the astronauts, the 1960s surf music band from Boulder. He spoke with Ryan Warner in 2012, just before the band was inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. They were joined by G. Brown, the curator of the Hall of Fame. Gallagher died November 20th at the age of 78. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.